0: From the Aspen Institute, this is Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. We're bringing you a bonus episode of the podcast this week featuring Hank Paulson discussing a topic that's dominating headlines, the world economy and China. He recently joined the Institute's president and CEO, Walter Isaacson, for the McCloskey Speaker Series. Paulson served as the 74th U.S. Secretary of the Treasury. He authored the new book, Dealing with China, an insider, unmasks the new economic superpower. Paulson has had unprecedented access to modern China's political and business elite. As head of Goldman Sachs, he had a pivotal role in opening up China to private enterprise. Then, as Treasury Secretary, he created the strategic economic dialogue with what is now the world's second-largest economy. Paulson and Isaacson spoke just days after China announced its first currency devaluation in more than two decades. After the surprise currency move in early August, China's stock market plunged several days in a row and sent markets reeling around the globe. The Shanghai Composite Index, China's benchmark, is down 40% since its peak in June. Here are Hank Paulson and Walter Isaacson.
1: In your book, you talk about China debt. You talk about the economy heading for some real bumps. It's happened. What's happening with the Chinese economy?
2: Okay, Walter, first of all, thank you. I'm I'm delighted to be here. A beautiful day in Aspen to see so many friends in the audience. Uh, Yes, so the the, the Chinese economy. The Chinese economy is slowing down significantly. Uh, The premier, uh, Li Keqiang, has talked about a new normal of being 7%. I think that's rather optimistic. I don't focus as much on the rate of growth because I think you have to expect that. and But what I focus on is how do they fix a economic model that is run out of gas?
1: Why is it run out of gas? Okay,
2: Because they've been so reliant, not only on exports, but on infrastructure investment funded by municipal debt. And some of it needed, some of it not de- needed, and so you've had this big run up in debt that's growing uh, quicker, than the economy and it's not sustainable. So the the leaders understand this, they they're focused on the problem, but it's easier said than done to reboot a 10 trillion dollar economy. And this is going to take some fundamental reforms in terms of fixing a broken municipal finance system, developing a new tax system, national tax system, changing the, the responsibilities between the center and the provinces. And then if they're gonna get growth, they're gonna to need to rein in the state-owned enterprises and. You know, create more opportunity for the private sector companies, which is where the growth has got to come from. So that's all easier said than done. So they need to reboot this economy, plus manage this debt problem. And so, as I as I said in the book, they're, I, I take comfort from the fact they've got the financial cap- capacity to deal with it. They've got the the leaders understand the problem. But to all of those who think they've developed a b- better form of capitalism, let me tell you that ain't the case. And this is going to be difficult, and there will be bumps in the road.
1: Now, the uh, stock market correction we've seen in the past couple of months, how fundamental is that, and how much will that continue?
2: Okay. So say one more thing about the, the economy the stock market. The, the economic reform has stalled for 10 years. And so this management team had a really difficult set of problems it was presented with. And so they laid out reforms to deal with it where they said the market needs to be decisive. Okay, so they said the market needs to be decisive. The reforms that they've outlined say that. And so then what they've had is they would had a big, you know, run up on the stock price. Uh, and, and of course, the definition of a bubble is no one fully understands that the market doesn't understand it until it, until it until it bursts. And so there was, there was a correction, in, in a big correction, a big decline in stock prices, uh, a big decline in terms of single-day moves, but not big declines relative to how far the market had run up.
1: And yeah. yeah, do you think the renminbi uh, or yuan devaluation what is what caused them to do that in the last three days
2: okay, so i'm going to get to that, but I just want to say one more thing about the so what what the the, the Chinese government intervened to to prop up the uh, equity. The, the, the equity market, and they did it pr- probably because so many unsophisticated individual investors had gone into the market with the assumption that the government you know, was somehow going to have had the capacity to hold the market up. And the point that I made here, which I think is very important, is this isn't the thing to really be looking at. The The, the fundamental problem is restructuring the economy. Now, this big equity market sell-off makes it more difficult to to restructure the economy. It's, it's, it's hurt confidence, and I think it shows also how much more they need to do to reform their equity markets. And so if I have a big concern there, it's that that the the sell off in the market might make it more difficult for the leaders to to carry on with the reform. Okay, now you ask the the uh, the equity market, excuse me, the, the the currency. And as you, you know, and I'm Brevity is not one of my virtues, and, and <laughs>
1: uh, 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 that's, this, one, this one will take a while. Th-
2: this is funny, but not that funny, you know. So, <laughs> so, but, but so, I'm I'm going to take a while because I I want to say that that currency is a an important economic issue, and it's also a very important political issue, at least in in, in the, the cur- Chinese currency in Washington D.C. And as I write in the book, it's it's been overblown as a political issue because it's easy to call attention to. I don't think that the big biggest issues in the Chinese economy has been have been currency. They've been structural issues, and issues that uh, you know we, we more important is to fight to open up the markets there. But the currency is very important. And when I was Treasury Secretary, which goes back you know, eight and now n- not nine years, that I made a big point about continuing to reform the currency. I never said to the Chinese, your currency is, is undervalued, even though it clearly was undervalued. I just talked in terms of why it was important in their best interest, because they were never going to get the economy they deserved or that they wanted to have unless they had a currency that was, you know, where the value was determined by market uh, factors, and sent a really you know legitimate price uh, signal in the market, and given what they wanted to do, they w- someday wanted to have a reserve currency, they wanted to, to move up the value added chain. All of this made sense. So I I made that argument repeatedly. Uh, the Chinese leaders agreed with it. They have, have moved to to liberalize their 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 currency regime, and so what what had happened. In over this past eight years, nine years, is the currency it appreciated relative to the dollar. And then as it has stayed stable with the dollar as they've managed it, the dollar is appreciated. So the Chinese currency has really risen and appreciated relative to, to, to most of the rest of the world to the point where there was a legitimate debate. Some people argued the currency was now overvalued. Some still thought it was undervalued. Whenever I got asked a question, I said, I don't know, and we need to get to the point where it's truly a market-determined currency, so we won't be asking that question. But Washington continued, the politicians in Washington hadn't caught up with this, and continued to beat on China for currency manipulation and unfair. In other words, propping up their currency. For, no, for they they, they they were beating on them for having an undervalued mm. currency, even though they, they had in essence been propping it up, okay? So that just shows you what a political issue was. So now, so what happened Monday, which was very significant, two things happened at once. And I'll, I'll try to simplify this. They have a managed currency regime and they announced a new methodology for managing the currency where there would be more flexibility, which everyone had been saying they needed to do to get to a market-determined currency, greater rate on market determination, I mean on, on, on the market in determining the value, and they were going to be greater variab- uh, variability. And so they announced that at the same time they devalued by 2%. And so you had some folks led by the IMF that commended them for this because this is moving to a greater flexibility, looking more at market factors. And then they received a fair amount of criticism from those that were concerned that that this might be the beginning of China seeking to get an unfair trade advantage. a big hot button political issue in Washington and, and, and concern. And this was happening the same time the Chinese economy was continuing to slow down, and there was some very unfavorable economic data that came out. And then the next two trading days, uh, which is just through Wednesday, the, the, the currency is depreciated by 4%. And so, again, this is heightened the concern. If you look at it in economic terms, with the economy slowing down in China, it shouldn't be a, a, a shock that the currency is, is depreciating. So now, what does it all mean? And, and 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 I think it means four things as I look at it right now. The first thing I will say is that the fundamental issue is what's going on in the economy. And there's no way that China is gonna be able to turn around their economy by devaluing the currency. Ultimately, that will be self-defeating and what all of us should be watching very, very carefully is what happens in the economy, because for all those that are sort of hoping that China has problems, they better be careful what they wish for, because if China has real problems there, all of our problems, you know, are gonna become greater economic problems. So keep your eye on the economy, number one. Secondly, with regard to currency, to me this really shows how important it is for China to keep moving with the reforms so we get to a, currency that really is market determined. So we're not going through all of this uncertainty uh, about the currency. China is an anomaly. uh, There are many developing countries that don't have market determined currencies, but there are none that are the world's second biggest economy and that are integrated into the trading system, but not into the financial system. So they really need to speed that up. And that is very important. Thirdly, it, it, in terms of the immediate term, it is very important that as China manages this currency, they do it very responsibly and prudently. This is in their best interest and the best interest of uh, of the rest of the world. And I believe that the leaders understand that, and I take some comfort from the fact that the central bank, PBOC, has been quoted as saying, that they believe it's important that the rim and be, be main, the value be maintained at a basically stable level. So that was the language they used. So it'll
1: stay within a 2% range. Well,
2: I don't know. No, they haven't been clear what they've said. You know, they, they devalued 2%. It's now 4% in the first three days. Market forces are currencies. This has roiled markets mm-hmm. around the world, equity markets currency markets, commodity markets, because there's two things going on at, 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 at once here. There's the overriding issue, what's going on in the Chinese economy? It's slowing down uh, markedly. What does that mean for commodities markets around the world? What does it mean for economic growth? And then there's what is going to happen with, with the currency? And so I, I just think it is very much in China's interest. And a, a, again, they've said that you know basically stable the the fourth and the last point i make is you can, can bet everything involving china seems to be a big political issue and you can bet if this was a big political issue currency manipulation so called in washington when the the rmb was being held up relative to to, to, to the global currencies while others are driving their currency down you can imagine it's going to be an even bigger political issue today
1: and in Asian countries as well which may lower their currencies
2: well, well yeah that's the the, the concern that, that if it if, it, if there's too, too much movement you'll have a currency war but right now if you look at what's happened to the other Asian currencies they're all coming down in in, in the market just coming down because not, not only what's happening to the Chinese, but, but concerned about the Chinese economy. Because basically, you know, this is an oversimplification, but currencies are often a, a proxy for what's happening in economy. A slowdown in the Chinese economy means a slowdown in a number of these Asian economies, hence their currencies are going
1: down. You said moments ago two things that seem slightly contradictory to me, but maybe I don't understand it, which is they should let their currency be market uh... the value of the currency be more determined by the market and they should also keep it stable don't that conflict well what's your uh... that's why this is a a a confusing area because
2: right now you don't have a market if if, if they got to the point where they had a true reserve currency what would they have they would have a floating currency determined by markets an open capital account freely convertible currency
1: and should they uh, have
2: that they, they, they that's what they should get to okay. and in order to get there I think they've got to have open competitive world-class capital markets and I think there are ways from there I think they're moving in that direction so why, as long as they have a managed currency I think it is it, it is very important that they that, 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 that they do this Prudently and, you know, and, and, and very responsibly and it's in their best interest If if, if the rem and B were to, to, to drop significantly, you would have capital flight investors wouldn't want to you know would, 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 would think more carefully before
1: investing there, etc um, the devaluation makes it uh, cheaper for their goods here and the slowdown of the economy means that inflation in the United States has probably been tempered slightly by this devaluation of the currency. Does that mean in your mind that the Fed will have less pressure to raise interest rates this fall? Yeah, I, I'm not going to get into that. The, the, you know,
2: I, I, when, I was, when I was Treasury Secretary, I, wasn't, I, I didn't comment on the Fed. And I think as a former Treasury Secretary, I shouldn't comment on it. I just will simply say it is just as a general proposition I look for, as a general proposition, I believe I, I'm a, a big proponent of the Fed's uh, monetary policy in the past. I think because for us to delever and have grown at roughly two percent since you know the third quarter of 2009, why we delever, I think is is important. And but I think it gets to the point where where it's ultimately self-defeating. And we need to get to a point where assets trade on, on the basis of real economic value. And, and I think that if, if, if everyone, if, if all it took was to have cheap money to solve all economic problems, people would have done that a long time ago. And so there's risks of bubbles and other things. But I think the reason that this is a difficult judgment for the Fed is we are, you know, we have plenty of headwinds ourselves. And as as our dollar rises relative to other currencies around the world, and of course, what would Fed tightening do? It would cause the dollar to rise even further, which again creates headwind. So what the Fed is trading off is stability versus growth. And that's a judgment that I don't need to make. And we've got some very good people there, and I have real confidence in Janet Yellen.
1: Does this uh, revaluation of the yuan actually help the United States? Listen, I've said what I've I've given
2: you a long interview on currency. Uh, This is about China and the China book. Let me go to
1: your book, then, which is, um, first of all, why did you write this book, and why do you think it's important for our political leaders to understand the complexities of dealing with China? Well...
2: Uh, you know there 's a humorous answer in the, the, the and the and the, the second answer the, hu- really the, 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 the humorous answer which is you know is, is absolutely quite true, is when I said to Wendy, after having gone through writing on the brink, right. which was a nine months of uh, uh, it wasn 't fun for me you you would tell me that you found it relaxing and late at night you would you would write and it helped you go to sleep i 'd write on the brink and i couldn 't sleep and so when I said to Wendy I was going to write another book, she said, I think I might date again. <laughs> and, but the, and you know what, it ended up taking me three and a half years and I'm not writing another one. I wrote this, I dedicated this to my grandchildren. And, um, and you know, I want my grandchildren and my children to grow up in a, a prosperous, uh, safe, world with a healthy environment and ecosystem, and I think that's much easier to do if we're working in complementary ways with China, and much more difficult if we aren't. I think that the U.S.-China relationship is increasingly fraught and complex, and there's going to be certainly going to be increasing tension, and yet— when I look at the major issues we need to deal with, whether they're the environmental issues from global warming to our ecosystem, or sustaining global economic growth, or denuclearization, or fighting terrorism, whatever, they're going to be a lot easier to 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 deal with if we're working with China, and very difficult if we're not. And so I just think that there's a lot of misunderstanding in in the U.S. about China and vice versa. And so this was. Uh, this was my real effort to deal with it.
1: What lessons did you learn from on the writing on the brink and from 2008 that applied to this book on China today?
2: Walter, an interesting question, because I have said always when people ask me, shouldn't we be fearful that China was gonna eat our lunch? I've said, guess what? I think you can make as big a mistake overestimating China as you can underestimating its potential because they've got significant problems and I've said that the best thing we can do in terms of dealing with China is deal with our own issues because we are going to be the predominant power for a long time if we're dealing with, if we restore our economic competitiveness, if we do the things we need to do to get deal with our fiscal issues and, and, and with growth and if we don't, we won't be. So, but what what i learned and what I, I talk about in this book which was which was which was a real lesson i tell the story which was in the strategic economic dialogue which was something i put in place with you know in, in the you know with george president george bush's strong support to help manage the us china relationship the economic relationship and I tell the story when Wang Shishong, who is a major character in the book, was my counterpart you know, as, as vice premier in, in, during the strategic economic dialogue. He came to Washington in June of 2008. And he said to me, and I was pressing them to reform their capital markets. And he said to me, well, gee, Hank, you used to be our teacher. And we used to listen, but our teacher doesn't seem as smart anymore as he did. And, you know, that was, and he wasn't being a wise guy. He wanted, he understood the need for them to continue with reforms. But it was much harder for us to be a leader and, and to, to press for reforms with the problems we had. And it just showed me, in really graphic terms, how important our Leadership around the world starts with our economic leadership. If we want people to want to to emulate our economy and look to our model, it's gonna be hard to do if we don't continue to stay strong economically. If we want to exert influence around the world, it's gonna be a lot easier if we're an economic leader. If we're the leader with trade agreements and with, 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 with investment overseas, and if if we're doing well at home and there's no example anywhere in history where a power has continued to be maintain its elite superpower status if they lose control of their fiscal situation so i'll tell you that is one thing that came through loud and clear to me let's fix our own problems and uh you know let's not look to others as a boogeyman let's not be worried about what others are going to do to us Let's deal from a position of strength and fix our problems at home.
1: Great. Um, Thank you. The book is called Dealing with China, and it's a great title because it has a few layers of meaning. But it starts, or at least early on, you talk about your first visits to China, making deals with Goldman Sachs. I think John Thornton and others were involved with you there. How has dealing with China change from then until now? Well, there, again, Walter, a,
2: a very good question, because there's three parts to the book. The first part is, as a Western banker dealing with the leaders there, when they used Western capital markets transactions to, um, to drive reform, and bring competition and and reform to the economy.
1: And privatize. And
2: and, and privatize, right. And and, uh, and so that was, and and so it's changed in, certain things are the same and certain things are different. So first of all, I'll tell you what, what is radically different. In those days, I was working directly with top leaders in the country on capital markets transactions. And today, obviously, you, you wouldn't have Xi Jinping or Li Keqiang or, your, or the vice premiers dealing there. But these were very important. And I, I tell the story in the... There, there's a chapter entitled Real Gold and Silver, which was the story of taking China Mobile public, which was called China Telecom then. And we priced that right in the middle of the Asian financial crisis on black friday and stocks traded off everywhere and and but over time this stock held held its held its value but right in the in the middle of the crisis when Wang Xishong who was our counterpart at the time and moved up with other reformers when he called his boss the legendary premier Zhu Ranji, to say you know we've this is closing he said, what does that mean? Do we have our money? And and Wang Xisheng said, yes, real gold and silver. And, and, and Zhu said, I'll believe it when we have the $4.2 billion in our hands. And that was in the late 90s. So the, you realize how much they needed it then. But the things that have ch- stayed the same is the lessons for working in China and how to get things done. And, um, and I, I would say one, I'll just make two of those lessons, uh, amplify two of those lessons. Um, w- w- one of them is that reformers, we, we tend to think of, because China is an authoritarian government, someone can just talk to a top leader and say, you know, why don't you do this, and then they can do that. And, of course, it is very difficult to get things done in China because there's a lot of power that's devolved to the provinces. You know, the old saying that, you know, uh, you know, yeah, the mountains are high and the emperor is far away. And so it's very, very hard to, to build the consensus to get things done. And so it's often e- easier for Chinese leaders to use reforms uh, as to, to use negotiations with with the West as a way to get reforms done, just as G used the WTO negotiations to open up the economy, and today the current leadership would like to use the bilateral investment trade negotiations. The the other thing I would point out, which is related, is leadership is very diffuse, and so it, it can if if you. Well-placed people can kill something, and it takes a lot of people to say yes. Mm-hmm. So even in a situation where the current leader, Xi Jinping, is, has aggregated power quicker than I think anyone since maybe or, or or Mao, there still is great resistance to reforms and vested interests. And so one thing I learned about decision-making in China, you need to get to all the people that have the, you know, the official responsibility for something and a lot of others who don't, but who weigh in. And that's why we set up the strategic economic dialogue because it got you know, all of the top ministers of China in a room with the whole US team. And, and so if, when we talked about currency reform, to come back to currency reform, rather than talking to the head of the central bank, Zhou Tran, who is a reformer, and making the issues to him, when I wanted to make the issues as to, to the point as to why it was in China's best interest, I could turn to Ben Bernanke and he would give all the economic arguments, and there'd be, you know, 100 people in the room taking notes and all the other top ministers listening to it. So that would, and that, that attribute about decision making in China is the same today as it was back. In, in the early days.
1: What is Xi Jinping like personally, and what motivates him?
2: President Xi Jinping. So let me, I, I this is a leader I've known for some time. And I tell the story that when I was, as it, it, treasury secretary, my first trip to China, when, when I was going to Beijing to see President Hu Qingtao and Wen Bao in Beijing, over the State Department's protests, I stopped at Hangzhou first and met with Xi Jinping. And I didn't know he was subsequently going to be named the vice president, and and then was going to become, you know, the, the 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 general party secretary of the Communist Party and president. But I knew that he had placed a big emphasis on economic reform and the private sector as opposed to the state sector. And I had a high regard for him. I thought he was going to be moving up. And I wanted to send the signal that I didn't think the world revolved around Washington, D.C. and Beijing. So I went to, to Hangzhou first. And he had a great political sense then because he arranged to have us photographed under the arch at Westlake where President Nixon had met with Zhou and Enlai. But so now what is he like? A lot has been written about gee, he, he's unscripted and he's, he, he's someone who's a really good listener and he's, 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 he's a very strong leader but I would say there's three characteristics that, that really strike me about the guy. First of all as I said earlier, he's aggregated power quicker than anyone I've seen to date. Secondly, there's no doubt in my mind that he's motivated by restoring China's greatness in the world, and, and and to do that, he wants to modernize the, 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 the country, and so th- that's the, the second thing I would say. Uh, thirdly, I would say that he's got an extreme, maybe extreme, but a huge sense of urgency. It is it makes your mind, boggles the mind that he's looking at all at once, changing almost every aspect of China in, in, in some way, the economic system, the social system, political system. So he's, he, he's moving to try to, uh, to reboot the economy, to develop a new urbanization model, the next 300 million people going to the cities. Imagine that, 300 million people over the next 20 years in China, they've already got 650 million people. He needs a new model for that. He's re- redone the legal system. Uh, uh, the government bureaucracy, they don't have the institutions they need to, 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 to manage. Changing the relationship between the center and the provinces. Uh, the n- new foreign policy, big changes in, in, in the military, and all of this through a party that's rife through corruption. And that's the other thing you need to understand about him. He sees the party and the preservation of the Communist Party I- as being of utmost concern. I think he, his number one priority is maintaining the power of the Communist Party. He sees that as, as, as a source of stability in, in the country and the one institution that's strong enough to drive change.
1: Is that why he's cracking down on free expression in the internet and will that work? Yeah, so
2: okay, again, a very big question. I will try to be brief uh, because what you see is someone at the same time he is liberalizing the economy, he wants to do that, say, I want the markets to be decisive. So more flexibility and freedom in the economy. He's tightening up on the political system, on freedom of expression, on the internet, media, and so on. And we, as, as Americans, look at it and say, That's, that just doesn't fly, those are contradictory. How do those two go together? To him, that doesn't seem to be a, a contradiction because again, he sees the party as being, as I said, the source of stability in, 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 in the country, in number one, and um, and he takes a dim view of anything that's gonna undermine the, the stability of the party. And now, in, in terms of my view on all of this, I'm gonna answer it in two ways. First of all, the question is why does that seem to be working today? Because at the same time he's doing that, he is focused big time on reforming the economy and to dealing with that. He's focused on the other issues that people care greatly about corruption. So he's got this massive anti corruption campaign, hugely popular, you know, punished over a quarter of a million party members, 75, you know, minister rank or above. And so anti-corruption, dealing with making a big attempt to deal with the environmental issue, which is a huge social concern, dealing with property rights. He's done away with, effectively done away with a one-child policy, you know, forced labor camps. So, but I ask myself, when you say, will it work? I look at it and say, I've run a global country a company, and I don't know how you innovate and in how you run a successful global business and do it without being connected and having access to all the information you need. What's going on in every country, not only the economic system, the political system, the regulatory system. So I think it's ultimately self-defeating. But I think the other thing, when you get to the internet, One of the big concerns I have, and this is not limited to China, it's what I see in a number of other places. We all have this view, which is what it should be, is this global free internet. And I think we're in danger of having a segmented internet and a number of intranets that are connected. And so that's the experiment. I don't think it's going to work.
1: Does that mean they're not going to allow this book to be published in China?
2: Boy, I tell you, Walter, you get the, all the cookie questions. So, in, in, in terms of this question. Both authors, we you, like being published in China. Right, right. And so, I'd like the book to be published in China. And so, I've said to them that this book will only be published in China if it will not be abridged, edited, censored in any way. And if it is, And if we can do that, it'll be quite remarkable because you've seen, you've read my chapter 19, The Party Line, and there are so many leaders that are major characters in the book. So, what I've done, I'm proceeding with a publisher that I trust in China. Uh, They're going to make a best effort to clear it. If they can't clear it, then I'll have a high quality translation and I'll publish it somewhere in Hong Kong or somewhere where I can publish it and I'll have a, 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 a Chinese language version of this.
1: What, what are they pushing back on?
2: Well, that's, that's just, okay. that, 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 we'll wait and see.
1: <laughs> the climate you just mentioned and be, I know that's something you care about deeply and you care about globally, In the book, there's a scene where you and Wendy see the wetlands, as a matter of fact. What do you think can be done, and you're doing with the Paulson Institute, of working with China on environmental issues?
2: Well, uh, again, now you're really tempting me to be verbose, because uh, because the Paulson Institute is a think-and-do tank that we have 15 people in Beijing, 15 people here, We focus on US-China and on economic issues and environmental issues in the intersection of both. And we have big effort when it comes to climate change and energy efficiency and a series of programs there working in particularly the Beijing, Urbei, Tengen area and a lot of the work on energy efficiency because that's where the huge opportunities are. You know, half of, just as one example, you know, th- this is a country that produces, it's the world's second largest economy, it produces and consumes half of all coal, uh, half of all cement, half of all steel. You know, 70% of the energy comes from coal, 20% from oil, this is an oversimplification. You know, only about 10% from renewables. A big effort on energy efficiency and we do that. But conservation is, is another focus. Because we care a lot I care a lot about the global ecosystem and one of the issues we focused on has been coastal wetlands which are being destroyed in China as they are elsewhere in the world by reclamation and but very quickly and so again the work there and that Wendy and I've done together has to do with you know commissioning studies on biodiversity in the coastline so we identify those areas that are the most in, in, environmentally and ecologically rich so hopefully they won't develop those to actually working in you know in in, in certain wetlands working to to set up parks and the Paulson Institute has been you know tapped by Xi Jinping and the government to to advise them and work as they set up a national park system so again this is a passion it's just something Wendy and I have done you know around the world for a long time and w- one of the chapters in the book in the first part is saving Shangri-La which is right. about this great rich biodiversity in Yunnan which uh, you know a lot of the world is unaware of and 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 work to set up parks there
1: well thank you for that and thank Wendy for that yeah. too uh my last question before we go to the audience as treasury secretary you were uh the lead i should say in setting up the sanctions on Iran with our allies and partners uh, on the nuclear deal. Now, leaving aside the details of the nuclear deal, do you think if that deal is not uh, uh, approved uh, that the sanctions regime in any way, shape, or form could stay in place? Yeah.
2: uh, Walter, several comments on that deal and i I will say at first i'm not an expert on the middle east and i haven't studied the specifics of the deal but i will make several comments maybe three comments Uh, the, the, the 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 first one is that i think it's somewhere between naive and unrealistic to assume that after we've the united states of america has negotiated something like this with the five other, you know, parties and with the whole world community watching, that we could back away from that and that the others would go with us, or even that our allies would go with us. That's the first thing. The second thing, I I can just tell you how hard it is to craft sanctions and that these, um, that, and unilateral the sanctions uh, and don't work. Okay, they, they, they really have to be multilateral. And as someone who spent a lot lot of time dealing with the Europeans and Japanese and the uh, you know in looking at the financial system, I can just tell you how hard it was. And even when we found abuses and went to the governments to get their governments to. to to, to enforce it so it's a difficult thing so i don't believe i think it's it's totally unrealistic to believe that that if 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 we backed out of this deal uh that that the multilateral sanctions would stay in place and i'm just trying to envision us sanctioning european banks or enforcing them or japanese banks or big chinese banks so again the third thing I would say, after um, and again, not as an expert on this for that qualification, I had a seat in Washington when we dealt with a big, intractable, messy problem where there weren't any neat, beautiful, elegant solutions. So you were deciding between doing something that was objectionable or doing nothing at all, which could even be more objectionable. So I don't particularly like it when people uh, criticize something that's big and important that's been done if they don't have a better idea. So what I would always say... (laughs) So I would always say, okay, you don't like option A, what's your option B? Okay, and if there's not an option, but, you know, and and you know, we went through that. I, I, I remember with the uh, w- when the money markets were imploding, and um, and uh, we were going to lo- use the exchange stabilization fund to guarantee them, and uh, and so I heard people say, well, how do you guarantee, you know, three and a half trillion dollars of money markets when you've only got the exchange st- stabilization fund is only 45 billion, or what what kinds of aberrations or dislocations is that going to cause and i said well if you got a better idea you know do you want the money markets and you know if you don't have a better idea fine we'll do it and so again that's so i'm not an expert on that but i but i do know something about about uh, working on these uh, on these sanctions and how difficult it is to put them in place Thank you. Thank you.
0: That was Hank Paulson and Walter Isaacson recorded live in Aspen on August 13, 2015 for the McCloskey Speaker Series. You can discover more about our programs at our website, aspeninstitute.org. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast, Aspen Ideas To Go on iTunes or other popular podcasting services. Follow the Institute at Aspen Institute on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Tricia Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs at the Aspen Institute. Thank you for listening.